Welcome to Hope for the Heart. I'm so glad you are listening today because we are continuing our verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. And this week we're going to have an interesting subject, and the subject is uh, suffering or persecution. I know that's not a chosen subject that you would want to listen to, but I challenge you to stay with it because this is the context by which we are studying in the book of Revelation as we go straight through. You know, when you take an expository look at a book of the Bible, you're not privileged to skip certain sections. Not that I would skip it, but some might skip it because it just doesn't seem to be apropos. But anyway, I want to uh, begin by giving you a context of Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. As I read this section, I encourage you to follow along uh, and, and, and read it with me. Uh, the, Revel- the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Let me read it to you. The Word of God reads, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, like I said, we're in the book of Revelation, and this is a, uh, a section that is uh, very important. Chapter 1 of Revelation, as the book unfolds, John introduces himself in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Christ, was on the Isle of Patmos. And so it's John who's writing. He's the last living apostle. The time of the final decade of the first century, John has been faithful. And we, we knew this would be true. He's faithful as, a, as an apostle, as a preacher, an evangelist. The Lord has used him to give great leadership to the churches in Asia Minor. When it says Asia or Asia Minor, as some of your translations will say, it's really talking about modern Turkey. But as Revelation opens up, John is in exile. He's been sent there to basically uh, be, he's in exile in a prison, a a penal colony living on a rock in the Mediterranean where they crushed rocks and did manual labor with no hope of ever escaping. John says he's there because of two things, the Word of God and his testimony. You see, he was faithful to proclaim the Word of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This means John was was a product of this persecution. So when he writes about this, this is a, a special subject to him. It's a very personal subject to him, And so we have in chapters 2 and 3 the letters from our Lord himself to these seven churches. Specific letters that lay out something about the character of those churches, the condition of those churches, and our Lord's word to them. Most churches receive very harsh commendation, uh, condemnation. I mean, five of, them, uh, five of them do. Two of them do not. That means they do not receive a harsh condemnation. The church at Smyrna, which is this one today, and the church of Philadelphia that we'll look at in a few weeks. There is no actual rebuke. These two churches have not succumbed 
uh, to uh, what we would call, well, what I would call probably just a worldly pressure uh, or being a very worldly church. Uh, in, in the very midst of their hostility and the paganism around them, they have not succumbed to all of that. They would what we would be calling, uh, that we would call them a lighthouse in a dark world of, of satanic philosophy and paganism. To each of these churches, there comes this letter from the Lord Jesus himself, embedded in this book of Revelation. We can assume then that when John received the book of Revelation from the Holy Spirit uh, over this period of time, that he has finished all of these visions, he's finished all of the book of Revelation, and he's made six copies, and they were with him, these people, these representatives of these churches, these seven pastors from these churches, and to each of them he gave a full copy of the book of Revelation and, of course, their letter that was specifically designed for their church. And when they had received those letters in the book of Revelation, they left because they were just visitors there and they had an opportunity, uh, as the Lord arranged it, I'm sure, to talk with and to visit with John on that island. You see, John was not allowed to leave, so he couldn't have carried it. But we don't know much about all the details of that. But anyway, these seven messengers went back to Asia Minor and they began to go uh, probably through this postal route from city to city on their way to each of the churches to give each church the book of Revelation as well as to read that specific letter to them. So, with that in mind, the context of this letter is not one that Christians would relish. It's the context of persecution. It seems as though one of the churches received the greatest amount of persecution of these seven. And again, these seven are types of churches through the ages. And there seems to be a digression as you get all the way through those moving from Ephesus to Laodicea, they get worse and worse and worse. But there's one church that seemed to have more persecution, and that is this church, Smyrna. Smyrna was receiving the greatest amount, and you have to ask, well, why would they be receiving the greatest amount? Well, perhaps the other churches didn't seem to have been significantly persecuted, were, were, or were not persecuted, because of I'm not persecuted as much is because they were friendly with the world. This church uh, is not like Ephesus last week. Ephesus had left their first love. They had a zeal for Christ and, and a cooling that, that the zeal for Christ sometimes mitigated against persecution. But this church is being persecuted because this church could not tolerate sin. They were very comfortable with not accepting sin. There was, sin was not allowed there. There really wasn't a whole lot of persecution to the other churches in some ways because the world had moved in and taken some measure of control. But not this church. This church of Smyrna and Philadelphia Church, which we'll look at later, stood apart. Man, they were different. As we look at this church, we're going to see this church was extremely uh, persecuted church. Uh, so you have this context that's given to us. And when our Lord says uh, in Matthew chapter 16, he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell, that's the euphemism for death. He was saying that Satan was going to attack the church with deadly force. Literally, there would be martyrdom. That's what he's saying in Matthew 16. But even though believers were martyred, killed, even though they were uh, necessarily had to be faithful unto death, 
These in Smyrna were told the gates of hell and the power of death and the hands of Satan could not overpower that church, could not prevail against it. Now, that's interesting because you look at this church and you're going to see some things that are going to be, in some of your minds, a little bit of a contradictory statement. But you remember now in the upper room, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. We find that in John chapter 15 and John John chapter 16. And so we know it's coming. Uh, We know that it's very possible that the church could go into a time of persecution. Uh, I was talking to uh, someone the other day, and they actually told me, as I heard them talking uh, to others, they, they uh, gave this 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 almost a, 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 a prophetic tone to what they were saying. They said, you know, the church of today has gotten so light on sin, so careless, so forsaking of God's Word. And most pastors are becoming more and more creative in how not to give the Word of God. That I think churches in America need to have a little persecution. Now, boy, you bring that up in a subject of uh, pastors or Christians, and there's going to be some rebelling against that. So I want you to know as we get into this, this is not a, a friendly subject, as that one that would be welcomed, but it is one that is perhaps a very, very real subject. You see, we don't know in America where we're headed. We just know that the uh, the tone right now is is not good with the woke community, the cancer call, or the cancel culture, all that is happening, the abandoning of free speech, people being uh, uh, dropped off the uh, or controlled by uh, Facebook and Google and some of these uh, uh, Twitter and all of these uh, it, dropping people for for saying things and then the the whole issue of hate speech. Man, we're headed down a very dangerous path. So as I give you this outline, I want you to understand that this is a letter that is given from the Lord Jesus Christ, which is number one. Who's the speaker here? Well, the speaker is Christ. Look at what he says in verse verse 8. The first, the last, who was dead and has come to life says this. Now, who is that? Well, the messenger of the church in Smyrna, John is told to write, this is from the Lord Jesus Christ. But it doesn't say it like that. He says, the one who holds the seven lampstands in his right hand, that's in chapter 2, verse 1, and then in verse uh, 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 this verse, it says, the first, the last, who was dead and has come to life. Uh, in verse 12, the one who is the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 18, the writer, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame. They're all using descriptions given in the vision that John wrote about in verse 1. I mean, in chapter 1. And so we see this as, as part of the emphasis that is given here. Because when you look at this, this title that is given, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life, that would be an encouragement to them. In other words, you, you Smyrna, you church at Smyrna, uh, or it's, it's, which by the way is a very real church. They are a very real town, a very real city in the ancient world. And they are going through a persecution that is taking many of them in death. And so we see this designation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this would be an encouragement to them. This would be a very much encouragement to them, because if God is eternal and has come back to life, man, that is encouraging to these people who are possibly facing death. 
Interesting statement about him is in Hebrews 7.16 that brings together the eternality of God and the death of Christ. It says that Christ arose by the power of an endless life. With it. What a great statement. Christ arose by the power of an endless life. Death could not hold him. The body of Jesus died and he went into the grave. The Son of God did not die. And the power of that endless life raised the body that that did die in the resurrection. Now, I know that's a little bit confusing because we're talking about the incarnation, but God, think about it, God can't die. So that's what he's talking about there in, in Hebrews. So this is a letter from none other than Jesus Christ, and I'd love to get this. Uh, think, well, think about this. If, any, if every church in America got a letter they knew was from the Lord Jesus Christ, man, would that shake up the church or what? Like our church, uh, the one I just retired from. Dear Grace Fellowship Church, this is how I see you. And this is what I want to say to you. Man, I, I think I'd be trembling, being afraid of, of whether this would be a retribution or whether this would be condemnation or a commendation. How comforting would it really be? How encouraging. Well, this letter to this church, it was encouraging that this came from the eternal one who knew everything. It was encouraging that Jesus had died and risen, and the power of death and Hades were in his hands, not Satan's. So the worst that can happen to them, death couldn't hold them any more than it could hold Christ. John writes down the words, the author of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then I want to look at the city. The city is... Uh, a very interesting city. It was founded specifically during the three years Paul was in Ephesus, and we can find that in Acts. Uh, but in Acts chapter 19, we, we see a picture of some of this, but it's about 35 or 40 miles from Ephesus. It's a remarkable church. It's considered a pure church. We don't have anything specifically to say about it other than what's given to us in Acts. But it's in Asia Minor, and it includes Smyrna and in that area where Paul was. So most likely, it was started by either Paul or some someone that was associated with that church. We can assume that during the explosion of the gospel, the church at Smyrna actually was formed. And so we have Smyrna. Smyrna was a converted, it was a church that was probably born during that time. Very dangerous for them because they would not say anything that anyone else had to say that that against anything about their leaders. They, it was a dangerous city to live in because in that city, Caesar was Lord. Not Jesus. Caesar was Lord. And not to say that Caesar is Lord could mean your life. And in fact, many did. So there were mass executions of Christians that occurred during the first century when they didn't say Caesar is Lord. Well, What's the watchword, the byword, the testimony of Christians is, well, Jesus is Lord. That could be a death sentence as well. So to not say it, you could die uh, by not saying Caesar is Lord, but by saying Jesus is Lord could mean death. But here's an interesting thing in looking at this, this church and this city. Smyrna means myrrh. It's a Greek word for myrrh. You know the myrrh is. Myrrh is that ointment that comes from a thorny tree. It was used to create fragrances that were placed on bodies for embalming. It's a beautiful fragrance. We, we, use, we hear the word myrrh found frequently in the New Testament. Uh, it's, a, it's a fragrance. Matthew 2 says, Wise men brought Jesus Smyrna, or they brought Jesus myrrh. Same thing. Mark 15, Christ was offered wine and myrrh. 
apparently it has some kind of a sedative properties to it. John 19 says, when they buried the body of Christ, they covered his body with aloes and smyrna, or meaning myrrh, same word. So smyrna or myrrh really was the same thing because it's a picture of suffering. Myrrh was used to place on dead bodies because the Jews didn't embalm. They just covered up uh, any kind of an odor that would be there, and so they would cover it up with myrrh. So here's a church called myrrh. Think about that. The church that needs, in a sense, to be anointed because it's facing death. Man, this would be a dangerous place for Christians to... This would be a very uncomfortable place for a worldly Christian, would it not? perfectly shows the character of a suffering church, suffering all the way to death. Myrrh supposedly had to be crushed to send forth its, what they call its, its uh, to yield a, a fragrance or to yield its aroma. It had to be broken or smashed. God permitted Satan to crush the lives of people in the town of Smyrna to send forth that, that fragrance heavenly, heavenward. So like a wounded child, maybe a fleeing from a loving parent. So the crushed Christians at Smyrna fled for refuge to their Lord Jesus Christ. You see, they were suffering, persecuted. Death was a reality. So it's a poor church, verse 9. I know your poverty. They didn't have human resources. Uh, but then a little bit about the city, because I have to move rather fast here. Just a little bit about the city itself. Uh, we looked at some of the, about the church, but the Smyrna, it was said, it was historians, it was a beautiful city in Asia Minor. And again, that means Turkey. Very beautiful place even today in the land of Turkey. It's not known by that name, it's another name. Uh, but the magnificence of that city was known throughout all of the area. Smyrna was an old, old city. Uh, it was, uh, it was, goes back as far as history goes back. You think you've gone back far enough, and sure enough, there's still a city there. Uh, so you don't really, we don't really know, but it was built around 200 year, 290 years or 325 years before Christ. It suffered from earthquakes, fires, wars. It was rebuilt, torn down, rebuilt, destroyed, rebuilt. Today, it's a major in, in Turkey called Izmir. Izmir. Uh, the, the contemporary name is Smyrna. If you go to Ephesus, you'll find no city there. There is none. You will find no church there. You will find ruins that are magnificent. And the name given to it uh, is, is the name for that they use for Ephesus. You have to go a long way to get to a city. And if you go through the rubble, there's ancient Smyrna. You will be in Izmir. Ephesus is gone. It's a harbor silted up. But Smyrna is still actually there. And... Uh, according to people that have written about this and people who have been there, there are still Christians there. So in Roman times, Smyrna was a great city with a harbor, uh, one of the world's finest, we're told, lovely place. It was just a, a, a tremendous uh, emphasis on this place. The setting was beautiful. To some, it was said to be the ideal city in the earth because of the harbor uh, and the foothills. and uh, It was covered with temples, noble uh, glorious buildings. It was a center for science, and uh, it was also in the ancient uh, world, uh, in that part of the time, of, of the world at that time, it was a, a center for medicine. Smyrna was a free city. It had always been on the winning side of all Roman civil wars, and so it maintained its freedom. There were no, usually no soldiers posted there, but every year, interestingly about this city, 
Every year, every citizen of Smyrna had to burn incense to Caesar. Now, this could be the, the very basis upon which all of this uh, persecution is happening. But every year, had to burn incense. You'd go in every year, once at one time, and burn incense to Caesar and receive a certificate. You heard me right. A certificate that you had done that. Without a certificate, you would be persecuted because you were violating the highest law in Smyrna. To be without a certificate, as must have been the case for many Christians who would not say Caesar is Lord, but only Jesus is Lord, risk discovery, finding people finding them out, and then death was sure to follow. And so we have a very interesting thing with this city uh, that, that we're going to see here uh, as we move through. So I want to go from the speaker to the church to the city, number three. Number four, I want to go to the... Uh, condemnation, the condemnation, uh, I mean the commendation. I keep wanting to do that. I, don't, I think I do that on every message. There is no condemnation here. There is commendation. And, and the persecution comes basically from three reasons. One, you just you don't have to write all these three down, just to basically hear them. Opposition to the emperor worship. Uh, uh, Rome, Rome was a, a Goddess Caesar was a, was a god. Smyrna became a center of worship of Rome and Caesar. It could be said that there was we have no god but Caesar. That was what what there was the saying was. So you can imagine persecution when you understand that uh, would be a, a very much a, a reason why Christians that were strong, uh, they had not abandoned their first love with Christ, but were passionate about their love for Christ would never bow and say, Caesar is God. So number two, the pagan worship itself. The worship, they worshiped all the gods that I mentioned earlier. Uh, many of the ones that were in Ephesus are here as well. Temples, festivals, gods, goddesses by the thousands. And the Christians would not actually do that. So they were out of sync with their culture. They began to be Christians who stood out like a like I've expression that I used to use growing up, we stand out like a, a sore thumb. Uh, well, most Christians don't really stand out like a sore thumb, but the ones who do is where the attention is focused. But I want you to look at verse 9. It, the, the writer here, Jesus is saying, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the blaspheme by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. So the first two is the tribulation is a poverty, uh, you're rich, but the blaspheme of those who say they're Jews and are not. That is the third reason for the for the persecution. I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not. I just wanted you to hear that one more time. But are a synagogue of Satan. What a statement that would be. They had always been a synagogue of God. You could always look at Israel and, and, and see them as they priding themselves on being a synagogue of God always. They would celebrate the fact that they worshiped the one true living God. They had rejected, however, their Messiah, and rejecting their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Judaism really demonstrated that it was satanic and, and emperor worship. They, were, they say they're Jews, but they're guilty of blasphemy. Well, what is blasphemy? Words spoken against God or slandering Christ or slandering God. You see, they hated Christ, therefore they hated God. They blasphemed Christ, therefore they blasphemed or hated God. God, which means they hated Christians. 
Now, Paul says in Romans 2, not all Israel is Israel, not all Jews are true Jews. And that's what it means here when it says this, when John writes this. They say they are Jews, but they are not. They're not true Jews. Not all Jews are true Jews. That is a probably a hard thing for you to understand. But we could say the same thing today. Not all who say they're Christians are true Christians. It's a frightening thing to say that. But that is a very real thing. And that's basically what is being said here, except they, they use the word Jews. But think about it in the text of Christianity. Not all Christians, I mean, not all people who say they're Christians are actually Christians. Let me put it to you another way. Not everyone who says uh, they're a Christian and they worship <coughs> excuse me, every Sunday in church is a true Christian. So, there are Christ-hating, gospel-hating Jewish people. I don't know whether people who profess Christianity and are not true Christians would be that way, but the Jews were. Synagogues in the town became synagogues of Satan, and they came against true believers. Now, if you're a Jew, man, this would be a very frightening thing. You can't even trust your own uh culture. You can't even trust your own people. The Jews joined with the heathens in putting them to death. They hated uh, Christians. Frankly, it's a familiar thing in the book of Acts. You see it in chapter 13 in Antioch. You see it in 14 Iconium, Lystra. You see it in 17 Thessalonica. The Jews persecuted Christians. They were brutal to them. So the Roman Empire, there were many wealthy Jews who had the ear of the authorities and they sought to blot out the new church. As Even in John's day, 40 years later, it was still a new church. To wipe it out, they knew the nation had rejected Christ. They wanted nothing to do with Christ. They wanted the first emperor to kill Christians. And the first one to do that was Nero. And he actually chose two Jewish people to be close confidants or friends of his. And they would give the ear, give him in his ear what he needed to hear, and he would use it to destroy Christians. In Smyrna, there was a significant Jewish population. They poisoned the minds of the leaders and the people against Christians. They claim to be Jews, it says, but they are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. So, I want to illustrate this. It brings me to a story that I think is very important when you read early church history, and this would be early church. There's a great his historical name that we know of. His name is uh, Polycarp. Polycarp knew John. Polycarp worked with John in the churches of Asia Minor. Polycarp was a pastor of this church at Smyrna. Polycarp was murdered in a, uh, 155 A.D., and he got a letter uh, by the church of Smyrna, the church of Christians, and it related Jews joining with heathens and, and speaking against Polycarp. And they wanted him to uh, to do certain things. They said he should be killed. He should be cast to lions and burned alive. And they were foremost in bringing. They wanted to bring logs and throw him in a fire. It was time for the public games in the city. The, the city was crowded. The crowds were excited. And and suddenly, in the midst of the games, they began to holler, "Bring the atheists!" Because you see, these were Jewish-led riots. Bring the atheists. Let Polycarp be searched for. No doubt, says the historians who write about this, Polycarp could have escaped. But already he had had a dream in which he saw a pillow under his head burning with fire, and he had awakened to tell 
his people around him, his disciples, I will be burned alive. His whereabouts were, were, were betrayed by the persecutors by a little slave girl who really told them where, she, where he was. And on a brief journey through the city, uh, these soldiers pleaded with this old man Polycarp, warned him. And here's what they said to him. Caesar is Lord. What harm would it do for you to actually just say Caesar is Lord and to offer sacrifice and save your life? You, you can almost hear Satan doing that. But Polycarp was adamant that for him only Jesus was Lord. He entered the arena. The proconsul gave him the choice of cursing the name of Christ and making sacrifice to Caesar or die. His famous words are these, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul threatened him with burning. Polycarp said, You threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and the everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come do what you will. He remained unmoved. Can, can you imagine the boldness and the confidence in Christ that he had? So the crowds, man, they were they were chanting, throwing sticks for to heat up the fire. It was on the Sabbath, and uh, they were bringing wood for fire, and they were going to bind him to the stake. But he said, "Leave me as I am." Polycarp said, "He, had, he for God has given me power to endure the fire." He will grant me to remain in the flames unmoved even without the security you will give me by the binding. So they left him loose and bound him in the, uh, threw him in the fire and he died for Christ. There's another little account, that I don't know if it's real or not, but it says that someone saw him burning and as soon as they did, they stuck their hand through that a little bit of that flame just to get a knife in him to hasten his death. Don't know. But I do know this. This is what happened to the pastor of the church at Smyrna. Willing to take that stand, Polycarp, who knew the Apostle John, Apostle, uh, John wrote a letter to the church at Philippi. And Polycarp was a kind of fulfillment to what the Lord says here in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. He did, so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful to death. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. This was a poor church. Parentheses, they were poor, humanly speaking, materially speaking, poor, but yet rich. Contrast that with the church in Laodicea that we're going to see in a couple of weeks. They were rich materially and poor spiritually. This church is the reverse. Man, they are, they are rich spiritually. And so we see this as, a, as a, a warning to this church. This could be specific 10-day period. We don't really know what this 10 days is, but it did. the persecution for that church actually did last 50 years, so we don't know really what that means. Uh, for the, but it is a very true persecution. And so we, the Lord uh, is speaking this to the church, and then he closes out with some counsel that he gives him. And this counsel is basically, he begins to say in, in verse 10, uh, after the, 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 the time of testing will be 10 days, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What is the crown of life? The crown which is eternal life. It's what is promised of heaven. Be faithful through persecution, whatever their persecution is 
is, is there. Be faithful all the way to the end, and I will give you the crown, which is eternal life. In other words, you know what this is saying? Basically, this is saying, if you're a true believer, you're going to make it till the end. Just put your trust, your faith in Christ. And then he says, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, overcomes all threats, all persecution, all hostility, all tribulation, all attacks, all deaths, will not be hurt by the second death. You may die the first one, that's physical death. You will never experience the second one, which is spiritual death, if you are an overcomer. We're going to take a look in detail at what that second death is. But what do we mean by overcomer? We come to understand that, that we go back to uh, 1 John chapter 5. Whoever is born of God, here it is, overcomes the world. That is what he's talking about. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will overcome. This is what he's saying. You will not be hurt by that second death. You, will, you might die this death, the one that could be around the corner from us, but you will not die that second death, and we'll find out what that is a little later in the book of Revelation. So, this is what this church is, a persecuting church. And let me tell you something. It's a very real persecution to hit this church. It could be a very real persecution that hits us. I encourage you to find a Bible-teaching church. Get into that church where the Word of God is read, where the Word of God is explained, where you can begin to grow as a Christian. It is worth your spiritual life to find such a church. If you can't find a church, contact me. Uh, William Rogers, and I will help you find a church in whatever city it is. I will go to the, the pains of helping you find a church. I hope this has been an encouragement to you. I hope it has been hope for your heart today. As we have looked at the scriptures and have come to the word of God and I have explained this in this little bit of time that I could what these few verses actually mean. Do not miss next week. It is the message to Pergamum, and that is a tremendous message. And I thank you for joining us today.